This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Could there be intelligent life beyond our solar system? If so, how will we find it? What will it look like? And how seriously should we take UFO sightings? In this episode, astrophysicist Adam Frank talks all things extraterrestrial. Hi, I'm Adam Frank. I'm a professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester in New York. For many years, I was a computational astrophysicist, studying things like how stars form and how they die. But over the last 10, 15 years or so, I've turned to astrobiology, asking a question that I asked when I was a kid, which is, is there life out there? Are we the only time in the entire history of the universe that life of any form has come to pass? Great. I mean, it's, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast, Adam. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. The reason we're talking today is because around about the time this podcast comes out is your, your latest book will be out, which is called The Little Book of Aliens. Yep. Which I suppose is sort of a, a scientific look at humanity's fascination with that question. Are we alone? Is there life beyond Earth? What sort of, would you say it's more a, a scientific approach to the question rather than what the general population might be used to in, in terms of UFO and, and lore like that in, in popular culture? Yeah, yeah. I wrote the book because this is a really interesting moment in human history. And I wrote the book to give people a view of what's about to happen. Because what's interesting is on the one hand, on the scientific side, we have never, you know, when you look at the course of human history, people have been arguing about whether or not we are the only species, intelligent species, or whether we're the Earth is the only place that life has happened for literally 2,500 years. In the book, I, I talk about how, you know, you can see the Greeks arguing over this question. Um, and now, remarkably, scientifically, we are poised to answer that question with things like the James Webb Space Telescope and the new telescopes we're going to be putting in orbit over the next uh, 10, 20, or 30 years. We're really in a position to answer that question where we weren't 10, 15, 20 years ago. So at this, we're at this remarkable moment where we're like, you know, we're at the the the, the shoreline 
We're about to put the boats in the water and start, you know, what is literally the most remarkable journey human beings have ever taken. And at the same time, we've got all this UFO stuff happening. Suddenly UFOs are in the news in a way they haven't been before. And I wrote the book to let people understand, like, you know, try and show people the history of the field, where we are scientifically. And really, you know, some stuff I talk about UFOs, the history of UFOs and, you know, sort of what's wheat and what's chafe in UFOs, what part you should be skeptical of and what part, you know, maybe there's worthwhile uh, looking at scientifically. I mean, do you think that we are close to finding signs of intelligent life or would a scientist even ask that question? <laughs> no, scientists, we are, I'm, you know, so I am, one of the reasons I also wrote the book is I am the principal investigator on NASA's first grant to look for intel signs of intelligent life. We are absolutely at the point with with our telescopes, we will have the capacity. We have the capacity now as a paper that my group has written to find uh, um, uh, signatures, what we call techno signatures um, in uh, of alien civilizations on alien planets. We are poised to be able to do that now, just like we are. We have the capacity to look for signatures of just, you know, what I call dumb life. I don't mean to insult microbes, but of, you know, microbial um, or plant bios, rich biospheres, uh, alien biospheres on alien worlds. We can do that now. That's what I'm trying to let people understand, that we are just at the edge of being able to have this capacity. And in the next 10, 20, or 30 years, will have data that is relevant to this question, as opposed to the last 2,500 years of people yelling at each other about, like, their opinions, man. <laughs> yeah, those two terms, biosignatures and technosignatures, essentially looking for signs, not actually being able to directly observe life, but looking for signs of life. How do we do that? And what are the upcoming missions or even current missions that you're sort of most excited about? Right, right. You know, so people, when people think about the search for life in the universe, because of the history of it, we tend to think of SETI, right? We tend to think of, you know, people with giant radio dishes, like listening for signals from, you know, alien civilizations, like actually, you know, like somebody's beamed us a signal that's going to have the cure for cancer or something in it. And, you know, that that is where, in some sense, where the SETI began in 1960. But the search for life now and the search for intelligent life now has moved way beyond that. I mean, that's still a viable way of looking. But what has happened is we, in the 1990s, we discovered our first exoplanets, right? We discovered the first planets orbiting other stars. And that was also a question you can see the Greeks the ancient Greeks beating each other up about. So in the 19, in the 1990s, 1995, we discovered the first uh, planet orbiting a sun-like star. And that was a revolution. That was the beginning of the, the, the profound change. Because when people were thinking about looking for life um, uh, among the stars beforehand, they had no idea where to look, right? Which, which star do you look at? How long do you look at it? And then starting in the 1995, we started discovering what we call exoplanets. And since then, we have had a revolution, a profound expansion in human knowledge, such that now when you go out and look at the sky, every star, pretty much every star you look at has a family of worlds. We know that for a fact. Every star has a family of planets orbiting it. And if you count up five of those stars, one of them has a planet in the right place 
for life to form. And what I mean by that, that's what we call the habitable zone. That means that every five, one in five stars has a planet in the habitable zone. And the habitable zone is the place where if you poured water out on the surface, right? If you had a jug of water, and of course you have to have an atmosphere, but assuming you have an atmosphere and you poured water out on the surface that you could get, um, the water would sit there in a pool, right? A little puddle. You could have liquid water on the surface. That's the basis of the habitable zone. So, um, what we've come to recognize is that the universe is awash in planets. So that was the first thing. Um, many of those, many, many, many of those planets are habitable. Doesn't mean they're inhabited, but they are habitable. Uh, and then what happened? So that's that's revolution number one. Revolution number two was we started detecting atmospheres. On these planets and we learned how to look at the atmospheres of these planets and by looking at the atmospheres of these alien worlds we're learning we're getting more and more sophisticated at sniffing out the chemicals the chemical composition of these atmospheres or detecting other things that are happening on the surface of the planets and so that leads to this idea of signatures either biosignatures or techno signatures because what we can do is we can now look at these worlds, we can see these worlds directly through their imprint on the starlight. Um, and we can look at the light that is uh, either reflecting off the planet or passing through the planet's atmospheres and see the imprint of things like um, oxygen or ozone. So ozone is a chemical, ozone is uh, three oxygen atoms together. It would, as far as we know, other than very special circumstances, it's only going to be there if life puts it there, right? The, the only reason there's oxygen in our atmosphere is because two billion years ago, life put it there. So oxygen is a biosignature. You find oxygen in an atmosphere, um, uh, you have a good shot that you just discovered an alien biosphere, right? Likewise, things like there are, you know, there are chemicals that could uh, that would be in an atmosphere that would never occur naturally. Things like chlorofluorocarbons, for example. If you detect chlorofluorocarbons in an atmosphere, which we can do now, you would have found evidence that there's a technological civilization on that planet. So, I mean, this is amazing. This is what I'm trying to tell people in the book. That's one part of the book is and, and explain to them how this is going to happen. We now, for the first time in the history of human race, have the capacity to look at alien planets and detect alien life. <laughs> amazing <laughs> but how easy do you think it is to get from we find evidence of alien life to we find alien life well that's you know that's science right that's you know what you got when you first think you detect something everybody freaks out and we have you know we're all you know it's it's a party and then the next thing you do is like wait did we really find alien life um, and so then you're going to have to start looking at the context, right? You're going to have to, you'll study, think, imagine if we found a world with, um, we thought we found oxygen, right? We found a biosignature. Well, what, what do you think the next step is? We're going to train every telescope we have at that world. We're going to monitor it continuously. We'll send giant spaceships into giant telescopes into orbit to study it even more. And over time, we'll accumulate more and more evidence to, to confirm or, you know, either confirm that conclusion or show us that, no, no, we were mistaken. So, you know, what's amazing also is that the, the astronomical community has become very sophisticated in our understanding of what a biosignature was. So back in the early 2000s, right, people were like, oxygen, if you find oxygen, you're done. And now we've realized a couple ways that oxygen might be produced 
um, uh, naturally. So we've got take we've got that in our pockets, and also we're starting to develop a whole set of other methods that are very much agnostic about what kind of life it is that are agnostic to, you know, you don't want to just use earth life as your example. So people have been developing ever more sophisticated, um, structured, that's, you know, uh, mathematically structured, uh, sophisticated, complex ways of telling whether or not we're fooling ourselves, right? Because that's the, you know, this is going to, when we get to UFOs, this is going to be a thing. Human beings, it's very easy for us to fool ourselves, especially about something we want to be true. And the whole point of science is to be sure that you're, you know, I don't want to believe, I want to know. So imagine that we found oxygen and we're monitoring this planet. Now what we'd look at is we're like seasonal, right? We, you know, we know that the Earth's biosignatures, the Earth has biosignatures, the Earth has had biosignatures for billions of years. They vary over time, right? As the Earth, you know, summer to winter, summer to winter, you can see variations in the uh, Earth's, um, uh, the Earth's spectral output, how the light changes because of all the forests. You know, so we'd look at this other planet. We'd monitored it over, you know, over years. Um, and every piece of evidence would either help us confirm like, yes, this is totally a biosphere, or maybe it would start to chip away at the idea. And that's what makes science so powerful and wonderful. Absolutely. But you, you sort of touched on something I've always wondered myself, and that's if astronomers from a cosmologists, astrophysicists from, an, from another civilization beyond Earth were trying to find life somewhere else. What would Earth look like to them in terms of their data? If they recorded a spectra of the sun's starlight passing through Earth's atmosphere, what would they see and, and how would they then follow up their investigations? Earth, that's a great question. And, you know, there a lot of people were, were a, a lot of people have used Earth as um, as a, a, a test case for for bio and techno signature studies. So people have looked at people have used um, Carl Sagan was the first to do this when the Galileo space probe was on its way to Jupiter. It had this complex orbit where it was using gravitational assists to fling it out to Jupiter. And um, it went by Earth one time. And, you know, uh, Sagan being Sagan convinced, you know, the, the people at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, to turn the camera to Earth and take a bunch of images and take a bunch of spectra. And that was the first time you could see that there was this wide variety of spectral features that completely told you Earth was inhabited by life. And that Earth also had a technological civilization. So, for example, there's this there's something called the red edge. If you look at the reflected spectrum of light from the Earth, the light bouncing off Earth, what you see is that the reflectivity of the light uh, jumps really rapidly right at the edge between uh, uh, a red light, right at the, you know, where the red wavelengths are. And that is because of all the chlorophyll. It's basically all the leaves in some sense. In the so all of those all of those photosynthetic stuff on the surface of the earth changes earth spectrum so there's this very sharp spectral edge and um and there were other things as well so the earth has had has been showing its biosignatures literally for billions of years and recently it started to show techno signatures so any any alien species that's been out there monitoring the um uh you know monitoring the galaxy looking around Earth would have shown up as a as an inhabited world for quite a long time. And think of it, we're just starting this game, right? So, you know, we're just now turning our telescopes with the we and with the technological capacities to find life. So this is a pretty exciting moment. We're about to join that galactic club, if it exists, of species that are going out and saying, oh, that world looks like it. That world has life. That world doesn't. That world might have life. That world totally has life. So um, it's a pretty interesting idea. 
Absolutely. It sort of brings us on quite nicely because you, you've mentioned it already. And I, I think it's definitely worth mentioning. I, I really wanted to gauge your opinion on UFOs, UAPs. How do you react to the legacy since the mid 1940s of you know popular UFO lore and Roswell and all that? Where does that fit in with your scientific analysis of the entire question? Yeah. So, so let's talk. I, I go into this book. I know people are interested. So I did my best to look at, you know, I read, you know, a bunch of stuff on Roswell and everything. Um, and, you know, here's my, here's my take on it. Uh, there is absolutely at this point, no evidence, no evidence that any scientist who, you know, would waste their time, right? Because that's what we do as scientists. We take literally take our time and we waste our time, <laughs> you know, studying things. And it takes a long time. It takes a lot of effort. If you're going to do a scientific study of something, you're really betting your life, de- you know, years of your life on something. And there is no evidence to date um, that is associated with uh, UFOs or UAPs that warrants the conclusion that anything we've seen is extraterrestrial or is beyond human capacities, right? I mean, that that's just, I don't see any way around that. That doesn't mean that what's happening now isn't worth study and we shouldn't put some time into study. And I'm for, you know, what NASA is doing, like the NASA panel. I think that's good. Um, but there's just simply nothing out there from the scientific perspective that makes you say, oh my God, for sure, this, these, you know, the, these things that are being seen are, are, are somehow, you know, are exhibiting po- uh, uh, technolo- technologies or behaviors that are beyond anything we understand on earth. And so let's just break that down a little bit and then let's go into the history, right? So, you know, because of the media fascination um, and because of the lore, as you say, people have this idea like that every day people are seeing things in the sky that they you know can't be explained. NASA, that NASA convened a panel in the wake of what happened in 2017 with the release of those uh, Navy pilot videos. So NASA convened a panel that looked at all the, I think there was a, a, the, the military had put out a report that it had data with like 120 or so, some, you know, around 100 um, uh, uh, sightings that it couldn't explain. And so NASA sorted through that data and they said, and what they found was they could explain 96, or sorry, 94% of them, 94% of them had explanations. 6% didn't. And some of those that couldn't is because you didn't even have enough data to begin trying to make an explanation. And pretty much when you look at the history of people doing studies of um, of UFOs, you always end up with a number somewhere around that. Somewhere around ninety percent of all of these things are, you know, they're they're lights in the, you know, they're they're jet planes that are moving towards you and then suddenly veer away and suddenly it looks like, oh my god, it made this incredible right hand turn. It's celestial phenomena. It's satellites. So I mean, that's what people should understand that, like, without a doubt, you look at the history, ninety percent on order of the stuff can be explained. Um, you know, the other, the stuff that can't be explained, some of those are certainly freaky deaky, right? You know, um, you know, so like in the book I go through, so James McDonald is an interesting character. So in the, um, the UFO reports start in 1947 with, uh, um, uh, 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 I think it's Kenneth Arnold was his name. He was a pilot who saw these, uh, you know, he saw some things as he was flying, uh, I think nine lights that were moving in irregular ways. Um, that was, the, we can go back to that, but that was the beginning of the whole UFO craze. And then within, you know, within, uh, uh, you know, a year, there were 800 sightings 
of of UFOs, flying saucers in particular. Let's let's put a pin in that and go back to it. Um, but so since then, you know, the the you know the military has done um, a, you know a couple of reports, a couple of studies. The, the, there's the Condon report in the 1960s, which also did a scientific study. Um, they all again end up with this number somewhere around you know uh, uh, 90% can be explained. But James McDonald was an atmospheric physicist who looked at the Condon report and really felt they had not done a very good scientific job. And he went back, he looked at the unexplained categories and interview went back and did interviews with the, the people who were around him. And some of, you know, and, and he was a very respected uh, atmospheric scientist. And some of the stories or some of the, he, he relates, I think, five or six cases in his paper. He wrote a very uh, a well-known paper called The um, Estimate of the Situation. And some of them are definitely freaky deaky, right? I mean, they're definitely, they're like ghost stories. They raise the hair on the back of your, your neck. But again, all they are are stories. And sometimes there were radar reports, you know, but there, you, nobody has the radar data. So, you know, what you're left with are just stories, right? There's no hard data that, you know, like of the kind that you use to build your cell phone or of the kind that we use to build these incredible instru- uh, um, uh, 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 technologies that you allow you and I to talk. And without that kind of data, we're all just left with stories, right? And and science doesn't work on stories. Science works on research. So um, at this point, as I say, there's really no reason to think that any of the UFOs have anything to do with aliens. Um, It's clear with the stuff associated with the UAPs that some of these military, you know, the military training exercises are having a lot of seeing things. The pilots, I think, are being honest in what they remember seeing. You know, remember, memory is never a record, but I think they're being very honest and they're being courageous and coming out and saying, look, we're seeing something. I would bet that those things are going to end up being about peer state adversaries. This is going to have military consequences. Um, But let's do the study, right? The only way, as I talk about, so in the book, I have a whole chapter where it's like, okay, look, if you really want to do a scientific study, if you want to go beyond just blobby photographs um, <laughs> and and, uh, and you really want to know, then here's how you do it. Here's what a scientific study of UAPs would look like. So I run through that and it would be about, you got to build your own sensors. You got to build your own instruments. Um, you've got to deploy them rationally. And then you need some rational strategy for sorting through the data to be able to say what's a false positive and what's a positive positive in terms of seeing things. So until we do that, we're just going to be left with, you know, the conspiracy theories. And there are so many. It's just that's the problem with UFO, the culture of UFOs. It's been nothing but conspiracy theories and, you know, really, you know, uh, I don't know how to say this conspiracy mongering and ideas that just, you know, they're all over the place. Uh, Any evidence is evidence, right? It doesn't matter. You know, uh, there's no quality control on what's considered to be evidence for anything. So um, the only way to really do this is to do it the same way we scientists have to do it, which is where you build your own instrument, you beat the instrument to death in terms of understanding it. And then you go out and take data in a way that is clear and transparent um, and, and from which you can, uh, derive conclusions. I guess just to, to put a fine point on this and we can expand on it, but is that what people have to understand is the reason why their medicines work and the reasons why their jet planes don't fall out of the sky and the reasons why these cell phones, these miracle boxes work is because science is absolutely brutal, brutal about the relationship between a, con- a, a evidence and a conclusion drawn from that evidence. Like, you know, we beat the crap out of each other in science in making sure that that, you know, that that link is, is you know, uh, a firm six ways to Friday. And there's no reason why 
UFOs and UAPs should not be subject to the exact same standards. And based on those standards right now, there's nothing that comes even close to linking anything we've seen in the sky with an idea that these are alien visitors. <laughs> and also speaking of the uh, miracle boxes that we have in our pockets, you would have thought that given the amount of eyewitness testimonies over the past few decades, you would have thought that, well, surely over the past 20 years, we would then have incredible video footage because these eyewitnesses now have an amazing camera in their pocket. But that also doesn't happen. Can we expand on that just for a second? Yeah, of course. Because I, I this is, uh, you know, in the, the chapter, there's two, uh, one of the chapters I have sort of two of my main objections to UFOs. The first is exactly what you said, right? I mean, the first UFOs were 1947. We're now very far downstream from that. Tell, you know, camera technology has become so advanced and yet still what we have are blurry photos, right? I mean, after all this time, you know, the, the resolution of cameras and the availability of high resolution cameras, everybody's got one in their pocket and you still have UFOs being nothing but blurry photos or hoaxes when they're sharp. And um, remember the Chinese spy satellite uh, or sp spy balloon? Um, there's an amazing photo that the pilot of the YouTube or the YouTube, the U2 spy plane took when he was circling the uh the sat or the, the balloon. And he held up, it looks like he's holding up a cell phone and he snaps a picture of himself. You can see his helmet in this thing. And there you can see the the spy balloon, and you can see the seams on the balloon. You can see the, you know, you can see the um solar panels in the payload hanging below it. You can make out the most extraordinary details on this uh you know what was previously an unidentified flying object. And so like come on, if the if the sky was full of these alien uh, uh uh spacecraft, we'd have thousands of high resolution images like that. Um and my other other objection I just want to bring up is what I call the high beam argument. Like the idea that like there's all these aliens, they're visiting us, they have super high technologies, they don't want to be found, right? They're not just landing on the White House being like, hey, we're here. And so they want to remain cloaked, but they suck at it, right? Because they keep, you know, like they leave their lights on. They're, they're constantly being seen and then disappearing. And it's like, look, man, if you really want to be cloaked, then turn your lights off. It's not that hard. Right. So that's there's a, that's what in the, one of the chapters in the book, I sort of run through those arguments. And that's what stretches the plausibility. I mean, at some point, it's these arguments that that the previously, you know, that most of the UFOs are alien craft just really stretches the realms of plausibility. But again, the only way to do this is to get data. As I said, there's there's some small number of these things that are freaky enough that, yeah, let's get the data and let's see where we go. If we did happen to come across intelligent life and alien species. One of the things I've wondered is, would it even resemble us? Do you think evolution would come up with the same solutions to life emerging on another planet around a distant star? Yeah. So this is a really interesting question. And uh, you know, I have a whole, the last section of the book, the last whole section is what will we find when we find it? And you know, there's ways in which we can use science, we can use understanding of physics and chemistry and evolution to try and at least put some constraints on that. And so um, the answer to that question really relies on us to look at evolution in particular and the logic of evolution. And what you find there is that, you know, evolution it works uh, on, it's both constraints, physical and chemical constraints, and then accidents. Those are the two most important things in evolution. So constraints are like, look, if you evolve life on a world that's got an atmosphere, a relatively dense atmosphere, then certainly one way to get around 
uh, would be to have, you know, have your life have these sort of curved surfaces, you know, extent, extensions with curved surfaces, obviously wings, um, and use that to be able to take flight because the physics, physics and chemistry, or physics in particular, allows if you have a curved surface and you, uh, you know, um, uh, have a flow over it, you'll get lift. So in, on, in Earth's history, you see wings evolving a number of times in completely different lineages, right? So insects have wings, um, mammals have wings, birds have wings. They're all very, you know, the, their last common ancestor is so far in the past that it, the fact that wings evolved in all those cases tells you that there was a certain amount of convergence of form. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, the evolution works by random mutation and um, the ability of a random mutation to fit into changes in its environment better than something that's not, doesn't have that mutation. So that's a lot of accidents right there. And as the uh, great um, biologist, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, wait, I'm free. I'm going to blank on his name all of a sudden. The author of uh, Wonderful Life, um, as he said that the, if you were to roll the tape of Earth's life back and start again, you know, three billion years ago, none of the species you see today would exist. You'd have life, you'd have things in the ocean, you'd have things in the air probably, but they wouldn't look anything like what we have today. Um, and in fact, there's been experiments that have looked at the balance between convergence uh, and accidents, contingency, and what they find is contingency tends to win. So this also speaks to the UFOs, right? Because, you know, all these, the idea of the greys, as they call them, these little triangle, triangle-headed aliens that look pretty much like us. They're a head on shoulders with two arms and two legs. No way. I mean, there's just, that is not, it's going to be very hard to argue that you're going to get that level of specificity of um, convergence that you're going to end up things that with things that literally look just like you, except, well, their heads are a little bit different, you know, or they've got little antenna <laughs> on their foreheads or they've got pointed ears. I mean, come on, that's just not really the way evolution works. So we should expect, we should expect to be surprised. We should expect also maybe to be grossed out quite a bit because, you know, the forms nature is more inventive than we are. I mean, look at a kangaroo, right? I mean, what is a kangaroo, right? It's like a giant rabbit that can punch you in the face, right? There's so many examples of Earth's history that are so bizarre that if you just started with a cell, you know, if I gave you a cell, a single cell three billion years ago, would you be like, oh, yeah, there's definitely gonna be a kangaroo coming out of that one. So yeah, there's just no way to predict Really, and this is actually formally. I study the. I'm, I'm got projects now in the physics of life and thinking about the progress, the ways life can evolve. And there's just no way to say which directions life is going to take. So we should expect to be radically, radically surprised. Let's finish on imagining that we have definitively found intelligent alien life, and that we've even maybe even made contact. What's the effect? on humanity, generally speaking, scientifically speaking, astronomically speaking? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, on what sometimes people think like, oh, everybody's going to freak out and there's going to be like riots in the street. That, that's not going to happen, right? Unless they land and they want to eat us. Yes, then there's definitely going to be riots in the street. But, um, you know, I mean, you met, look at like the technologies we have, right? You know, uh, you, we, we get these new technologies where suddenly, like, when I, I grew up when, like, the idea of having a um, video conversation was some kind of, like, super high tech and it was going to change everything. And then we got it and 15 minutes later, we're like, ah, oh, man, the quality on my video is really bad, right? So I, human <laughs> beings are very adaptable. However, having said that, 
It will still be into the long term. It'll be the most profound scientific discovery in human history. And it will, like there was not going to be riots in the street, but, you know, give it 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200, 400 years. It's going to reshape how humanity thinks about itself, its own destiny and our place in the universe. Because here's the thing, right? Right now, we do not know whether life was an accident, like life itself was an accident, that there's no place else in the entire universe where life has occurred. And why is that important? Because as we talked about a moment ago, life is unlike any other physical system, right? If you give me a star and tell me that star's mass and its chemical composition, I can pretty much tell you its whole history. I mean, you know, the details may, you know, things are gonna be different, but overall I can tell you its whole history. As I said, if you give me a cell and ask me to, you know, and when I come back in three billion years, what's gonna happen? No way. Life is inventive. Life is creative, life is innovative. So if we find just one other example of life, I don't care whether it's intelligent or microbes, what that means, if you find one other example, then it's pretty easy to imagine that there's lots of examples, right? We weren't an accident. And then in that case, all bets are off, right? Because life is inventive, who knows what it's done? Who knows what it's evolved into, whether here in this galaxy or the galaxy next door or some galaxy a trillion light years away. It just means that 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 this innovative capacity that the that the universe has has the possibility of multiplying to the nth degree. And then really, right, yeah, you know, things like the I mean, I'm not a big fan of the simulation hypothesis, but just because life becomes because life is so creative and so potent, it's it's very hard to predict what it might do or where it might go and what the consequences of that are. And so it just really profoundly reshapes our understanding of what we are in the universe. And if we ever found, you know, we are at a moment right now because of climate change and all the other issues we face, it's not clear that humanity is going to be here in another thousand years. So finding one example of a civilization, and we wrote a paper a few years back that showed if you find another example, it's probably going to be older. Finding one other example of a civilization that's older us would tell us that it's possible, right? We don't even know if a long-term civilization is something that the universe does. Maybe that's just not in the the um, you know the list of uh, of things the universe builds. So just finding one other example would show us, like, yeah, there's some hope for us that maybe we can manage our stupidity, you know, <laughs> and our angelic qualities together to be able to go forward. So I think it's it would be the most important discovery humanity had ever made. I think that's a really nice note to end the podcast on, Adam. Thanks very much for coming on and for sharing your wisdom. And it's been incredible. It's been quite a journey, <laughs> the podcast, yeah. this episode. And good luck with the book when it comes out, Little Book of Aliens. And yeah, hopefully get to speak to you again sometime in the near future as well. I would love that. That was This was a really fun conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.